In the days after the bombing, his medical team gave Paul a 50-50 chance of survival. He was listed as critical but stable. The news was bleak, particularly for a little boy with his whole life ahead of him. Early on, doctors knew it was likely that his right leg would have to be amputated. After the first emergency operation, his limb was held together by a metal device attached to what was left of his leg during an eight-hour emergency surgery. Paul's prognosis would be better, they said, without the damaged limb and the extra possibility of infection. He had lost about eight inches of shin bone and a lot of muscle during the explosion. And that was just his leg. The child also had second and third degree burns over half of his body. He was in good hands at the Shriners Hospital, where he was sent after his initial stay at Orlando Regional Medical Center. Shriners would pay all of his medical costs, including transportation to and from, until he was 18, but I doubt that was much comfort to an 11-year-old in severe pain, away from home, and severely traumatized from what he'd been through. Paul's parents had divorced in 1977, and the children were separated around 1983 when Paul's brother and sister wanted to go back to Ohio to live with their father. Paul stayed with his mother. His father told the Orlando Sentinel in 1984 that he was a mama's boy and he wanted to stay with her, where they lived at Hilltop Trailer Park, lot number 20. Family members described Paul as a smart, quiet boy who kept to himself, but even so, he had charmed the little girls in Ohio, where they lived before, with his bright blue eyes and his strawberry blonde hair. When they learned about the incident, Paul's father and some other family members quickly cobbled together enough resources to make that trip from Ohio to Florida, only to learn after they had arrived that he had been flown to Shriners Burn Institute in Cincinnati, which would have been a hell of a lot quicker and cheaper for them to get to from where they had just came. It's important to underline the economic impact of this incident on a family whose means were already stretched thin. Gas to travel from state to state, money for food, all of that likely put a burden on a family already in distress. Most of the family members in Orlando didn't even have telephones, so communication between them was an issue in the early days. Paul's family didn't have much. That Christmas, the day this all happened, he wasn't getting any gifts and he knew it. His mom just didn't have the money to buy them. They didn't even have a Christmas tree. And now he was stuck miles from home in terrible pain and probably really confused about what had just happened. Picture it. He's bandaged from head to toe, forced to lay flat on his back 24-7, staring up at the strangers in masks. No Christmas dinner for him. He's tube-fed all of his meals, and he has to be subjected to twice-weekly skin grafting that is so painful They have to sedate him in order to do it. While Paul embarked upon what would be a long period of recuperation, police were tracking down as many people as they could who were at the scene that day. They got hundreds of leads and statements from everyone they spoke to who was at the store that day, particularly around the time of the incident. Now, we know that timelines are important in all cases, but none more than in a case like this, where police have to pin down when the device was left at the air pump, and then determine who were witnesses in the area at the time and what they might have seen that could be useful. Not everybody's seeing everything. They're all getting bits and pieces of the story. 
So before I get to some of the witnesses whose statements tend to corroborate one another or add to the timeline, I want to discuss a tip that probably got more news coverage than it should have and how I think it could have derailed this case. Now, here's the thing that I think where this, where this may have gone off the rails a little bit, or it may be another clue. There is a witness, a child, who was in the area the day before, Christmas Eve, in the morning. Mm-hmm. And this, the sketch that we saw of the man in the newspaper with the long hair put in the box there, Yeah. Um, that, she gave that description. That was from a little girl. Now, how the, old of a girl? I think around eight. I'm not oh sure. Oh my God! Yeah, no, that's now, that's that's right. Yeah, bad with the statement. Okay. Now, here's the problem with that. What she saw was different than the bomb that described by the by the man and his son. What she saw was a man with just a box. There was no bag. It was in, and the thing that was leading from the box. The string that was leading from the box mm-hmm. to the air compressor was a thicker piece of something. It almost looks in, in the in the picture depicted as a piece of cloth. Um, and and in the actual bomb, a fishing line was used. So it, it, either she's misremembering or or um, embellishing, or the actual bomber tried to place it there the day before, something wasn't working, and he came back the next day and used the monofilament rather than the piece that they, they described there, and yep. he put it in a bag. The only other thing I'd be worried about with that eight-year-old is they're easily influenced, yep. so any one sentence that anyone says could be in that child's mind, and she's repeating it. Like it says, yes, but was it a piece of cord, honey, or was it fishing line, or could it have been this or that? And then she says, exactly. she and, makes it and up. And the, bo- the police were skeptical. I would totally throw that out the window. The police were skeptical about it, although, mm-hmm. again, they had to take it into account that it's a possibility, yes, at least, it is. that... Um, where the hell are we going? That way. Oh, okay. This <laughs> remember the little, at all remember the little entrance that know, used to be there? Yeah, egg, yes. Yeah, they, no, they I don't remember that. that all out. Oh, is this 436 and 441? Yeah, that goes to Akaiba. Oh, it's totally different. Okay. So, anyway, back to that. So, they have to consider the possibility that the bomber did come the day before, tried to put it in, and then didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, or the little girl is embellishing, you know. Um, the thing is, I think that they... I'm going to go back and look at the reports, I believe, based on the handwritten notes that I found. Mm-hmm. The police don't think that she was either there at the time or she was... Um, could see what her and the... I think it was her and the, two people, a brother and a sister, mm-hmm. could not see what they said they could see from the positions that they could see it. So the police were definitely skeptical of that um, account. I'd have to see the eight-year-old because if they yeah. asked you... You would definitely be able. I would. I would rely on what that's you said because thing. you are really good. Right. Uh, you. I mean, you were Look, describing Saint things. Francis that of Assisi one of, Yeah, that's where I used to go to church. That's uh, where we had graduation. Yep. Um, they. Um, if you were describing it, you would have done an excellent job at that age because you were very astute when you were. And they interviewed two, three the, years the, old. The child's teacher apparently, and the child's teacher said, "Well." Um, they didn't think the child was lying, that she definitely probably saw something. The child also might have been prone to exaggeration a little bit. So you kind of have to take it as a maybe, Especially maybe if not. they got to her after mommy talked about yes. it or daddy talked about it Be- or neighbor talked about thing, it. And here's the thing. What happened was, this is how this all played out. The Orlando Sentinel talked, and I don't know if the, the family reached out to Orlando Sentinel or Orlando Sentinel got a records request and tracked the woman, the parents down. But the Orlando Sentinel talked to this family after police had already interviewed the mother and that when the police interviewed them the first time they didn't give all this information all right now the little kid they didn't talk to right on site no this okay was, she saw it the day before mom 
what her sighting was the day before on the 24th the yeah. bombing was the 25th so she, what she saw was a day before yeah 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 well so, if her mother already if she heard her mother give a description and all that other kind of stuff too you know what i'm saying yeah it's just not it's just not <laughs> and so you can see you well, can listen to it but yes. it's not you know you may have not to be keep reliable. it in the back of your mind but you can't unless somebody comes up with something exactly and like the, it the problem with that is that's the sketch then what happened was the newspaper orlando sentinel put that sketch in the newspaper there is, oh the trump the trump merch store it, it looks like a shack on the side of the road looks like they're grilling barbecue there too that's delightful okay anyway <laughs> it's so typical <laughs> so anyway um the problem we have here is that the orlando sentinel interviewed the girl got all these details that the police never got the first time around and mm -hmm. then put the sketch in the newspaper which gave validity to that sketch and everyone was looking at that sketch and that man in that sketch as the description of the actual perpetrator and when we don't even know a, and ignored a couple of other red flag things that yes, have come up. Like another sketch that I found in the police report where the guy has shoulder length hair, not long. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know that they were working with a good description of the actual perpetrator. Yeah, yeah, that kind of messed things up there. Right. So that's a problem. And it shouldn't have got to the news. Well, and that's why the newspapers have to be really careful about what yeah. they put out there yep. because that influences the viewing public, the community. And mm -hmm. so... You know, it influenced me to you just explained it to me. Yeah. And I read some, you know. And again, maybe she did see something. We don't yes. know. Well, but you have to take it into true, consideration, but you can't. Right. But if it's not true, everybody thinks that that is what the perpetrator looked like. And we don't necessarily have anyone else putting someone that looked like that um, at the at that at that pump. Well, another thing, too, is it, that, that that thing could have already been there, and there could have been a guy with long hair looking at it just to see what it is, like the guy in the car well, did and walked away. Well, she said it was kneeled down. I mean, they've got front and back um, pictures of it, and I'll, I put it on the, the down Yeah, but Facebook they don't page. have pictures. they got a sketch of a girl's mind saying he right, was kneeling down. Right, It could I'm have been somebody just notes. looking to see what it was. I will insert the notes that the detective wrote about this, and it'll you, you can make your decision about how you feel about it. Yep. Well, if it's an eight-year-old girl after they've... I think after it was eight. The scene, I need to double-check on that. After the event, you know, like a week or three days or four days after mm -hmm. the event or something, and her mom has already been talking to neighbors and people, and everybody's excited in Lockhart, because Lockhart was a one-over-the-fence kind of place. Yeah, everybody was talking to everybody. Yeah, exactly. you, and you could go right down the street, over the fence, over the fence, over the fence, and everybody's got it. By the time it gets to the last fence, there's a whole new story, and God, it could have been anybody. I was wondering, I find myself wondering, what the heck was the little girl doing around that store there? Nobody, um, no, no, the neighborhoods were wide open. Nobody cared. They walked, every, kids were walking the streets all the time. Kids walked a mile to go to school there. Yeah. So we used to actually, Reese used to, and we knew we weren't supposed to, Reese used to go from Armstrong all the way down Beggs, cut through Hilltop Trailer Park, which we know that's not the best trailer park, mm -hmm. which is where Paul Jewell lived, um, and then go to a little janky um, store to get candy and then drive back. Yes, I know. We used to, we, all the whole neighborhood kids, gone. but mm -hmm. yes, the neighborhood kids, and I'm talking about when you were little kids, too. You're, you used to walk down the neighbors a block and a half away around down, around the side there with your neighbor friends, and nobody ever worried about stuff like that then. I thought it was important to speak with one of the Orlando Sentinel writers who covered this case back in the day and get his perspective, because while I have my own opinions of the sketch in question, I wasn't there on the ground in 1984 and 85. He was. Dan Tracy did extensive reporting on this case, along with another reporter. 
so I was at the time I was a general assignment reporter um, for the Sentinel, and uh, I don't know, I can't remember if I asked it, you know, if I wanted to ask to jump on it or not, or, or if they told me to. I can't remember, but you know, it's a cop story originally. Right. Um, but then as it kind of drug on and nothing happened, then uh, they, myself and another reporter, Alex Beasley, um, they asked, you know, we started digging into it, and you know. I can't tell you how many stories we wrote. We wrote a lot. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, the sheriff's office wasn't real happy with us because they felt like we were trying to show them up, um, which we weren't. But uh, I just remember it was a big story. I mean, you know, TVs were, all the TV stations were on it. You know, we were all over it. Papers from other parts of the state in the St. Pete Times, the Miami Herald, they came in and did stories on it. So there was a lot of competition um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of back and forth on it. And the problem, um, because it, it, you know, I mean, the, the little kid's riding his bike, he goes to, you know, fill up his tires, and, you know, next thing you know, he's, he's blown to smithereens. Mm. You know, and one of the problems they had was they, you know, of course they called 911, and they, they had, they, they brought a helicopter in to, to medevac him out. The problem with that was, was that, you know, the chopper just spread what little evidence there was far and wide it kind of contaminated the whole crime scene from the very start right um and of course they didn't have the dna and you know the ability to to you know the the, the, the high-tech stuff that they do now um they didn't have any of that back then i, I <laughs> we um we got to you know uh, alex and i got pretty close to the uh to the family um and <laughs> at one point i had the, you know, his leg was pretty much torn off at the scene, but his other shoe was still on his foot, and she gave me his other bloody tennis shoe uh, oh. <laughs> after the fact one day. And I had, so I had to call up the sheriff's office, and I said, hey, guys, I don't know if this means anything to you if you want it or not, but I've got his other bloody tennis shoe here in the newsroom if you'd like it. <laughs> My good, what was, what was her reasoning for giving it to you, do you know? Or she just was out of her mind? Well, with... she just kind of felt like, you know, well, maybe they, maybe they can use this for something. Right, <laughs> yeah, well. Like, oh, okay. So, you know, that's what we did. So I, she gave it to me in a plastic bag and I took it in the newsroom and I called him up and I said, hey, I got this tennis shoe if you want it. <laughs> oh, they must have loved that. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I spoke to an older lady named Kay. She had a, a, a British accent, I believe. She was 85. I almost didn't call her, and shame on me because she was just a little spitfire. And she, her recollection was that, this is all these years later, that Paul had come in earlier yeah. that day um, to get a soda and brought some bottles back. And then. Yeah, that's. True. Okay. You remember that? True. I remember that. Okay. Yeah, I remember something along those lines, yeah. So you were, the feeling was that he had been there more than once that day? Possibly. I mean, well, what I remember is, well, there, there was kind of two theories. One was that, you know, I mean, he was, he, he was known to, you know, trying to get, you know, take a bottle back, get, you know, 25 cents or a nickel. And then it was also that he was, he was going to get air and he had borrowed some kid's bike and was going to put air in the bike, right. in the tire. And that's when he came upon package which was next to this you know which was by the i guess by the um you know the air pump so it could it's entirely possible that he could have been there twice i can't remember if i heard it from someone i spoke with or in an article one mention of someone saying that there had been 
someone that said to him at the store, go look over there, there's a package. Did you ever hear anything about someone saying that, a, a witness, like there at the store that day? Well, I, um, I don't remember, to be honest with you. Um, I, I know that there was, people thought that, you know, that there was a long-haired guy that, that um, was there and, and might have done that, um, you know. We never, no, no one ever found that guy. Um, I remember we, we got an artist's rendering based on a number of people who claimed to have seen that. And I remember taking it over to his mom and his uncle. And they and the uncle said, yeah, I've seen this guy before, but nobody could put a name to him or where they saw him or where he lived or anything like that. Uh, that was just one of the many um, things that never really truly quite panned out. I wanted to ask you about that sketch because it seemed just based on my reading that the police they had a a, a a visceral reaction to that sketch and um, they were not happy with it. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's putting it nicely. Yeah, and so and I think just going through the the documents now the is probably because that description doesn't match any of the physical descriptions of the people that saw people of interest on the day in question that description was based can you what can you talk me back and tell me I, I believe that was based on at least in part on a description given by one or two children is that correct i can't remember i remember we, we canvassed the whole neighborhood and you know i i, I remember at, at the point that we were talking to a lot of people the, the, the police had we were kind of surprised as i recall and you know, again, this is how many years ago now, right. um, that, that the police hadn't canvassed, the, you know, the sheriff's office hadn't canvassed everybody, you know, in the, in the area. And we ended up knocking on every door there was. Um, and so, you know, that, that picture or that, that drawing was based on a number of descriptions that we got of people, you know, people provided from us. And I, was it, just kids. I think it would have been more than just kids. We wouldn't have done it, but it was just based on one or two kids. But um, I, I do remember canvassing the whole neighborhood, and people say, "No, I haven't talked to them, or I have, you know, nobody's talked to me about this." Right. Yeah. So, so I've got some handwritten notes from the investigator on these particular witnesses. First, the child was an eight-year-old third grader. Police went back to question her and her mother and her brother after the Orlando Sentinel published that sketch. According to the investigative notes, the unknown male subject was seen walking up and down the road. He had no vehicle, and he had a long beard, and his hair was pulled back, and he was dressed, quote, like a transient. This man was allegedly carrying a box with a hole in it. And the notes say that they saw this unknown man walking around outside the store, but they never put him in the area of the air pump. The notes also say that when they attempted to pin the kids down on details they would become vague and give general information. The notes go on to say that the mother could be of no help, and the feeling was that the child's story was unreliable because she and the boy hesitated when giving details. Also, remember that everything that they say they saw occurred the day before the actual explosion, not on Christmas Day, and these two children weren't even in the area on Christmas Day. They had gone to their father's that morning. When one of the detectives went to an area where the boy had said he had seen the unknown suspect, it was behind a hedge, and the detective couldn't even see vehicles from there. In the end, I'm not sure that police put much credibility into this story. Not only did it allegedly occur the day before, 
but the physical description of the male was not the same as the description that other witnesses who were at the shop and go were giving of individuals that they had seen on the day in question during the relevant time period. In another article, a woman told the Orlando Sentinel reporter that deputies had told her they were looking for a man with dark hair, long sideburns, and wearing dirty clothing. Captain Gempel confirmed that they were looking for someone roughly matching that description. From the reports that I received, there was a sketch made, dated in February of 1985, that was a headshot of a man, a side view, with long sideburns and shorter collar-length hair. He did not have a beard. While this sketch does not match the one made based on the details from the young girl, police were careful not to rule her account out entirely. In another Orlando Sentinel article, Captain Gempel elaborated. Last week, the woman told the Orlando Sentinel that they saw a box attached to an air pump at the store between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. on December 24th, the day before Paul was hurt. Gempel said the box that the two women reported seeing was similar to a box that a child saw a man place against the machine at about 7.15 that day. The type of box that the two women and the child say that they saw does not fit the physical size and description of the package that the other witnesses and Paul saw before it exploded. The captain conceded that it was possible that the man removed the first package and returned on Christmas Day with another one, but it would be a very dangerous, stupid thing to do to move such an explosive around. From what Paul said, the bomb was touched off when he touched it, Kempel said. It would be stupid for the bomber to put his own life in jeopardy twice. But again, we haven't ruled that out. A detective and bomb specialist with the Fort Myers Police Department Bomb Squad said in 1985, quote, pipe bombs are more dangerous than other types because of fragmentation. Bomb experts do not attempt to dismantle pipe bombs because these devices are so unstable. They can easily explode, even in the process of making them. They are very unpredictable. We remove it to a safe area and we blow it up. They're too dangerous to try and dismantle. The critique from the police office was um, that what it did was it brought in a lot of um, calls that made their work, they said it in the newspaper, that made their job harder, and most of them were, they were tracking down transients. So do do you recall them being, you know, giving you guys a a, a hard time, giving your newsroom a hard time, any of that? Like, Oh, yeah, they were. Oh, yeah. They were not happy with us. I remember that particularly, sure. Yeah, but yeah. that's not unusual in a high-profile case, you know, in a high-profile story. You know, I mean, that's, you know, to, to, for there to be tension between the reporters and the, right. and the sheriff's office or the police department or whatever, you know, city hall for that matter, you know. But they didn't uh, sit you down and say, listen, here's the deal, the description that you got from these people of an incident that occurred the day before Christmas, not even the day that it occurred, is not matching the description they never, uh, you know, that we're getting from other people who are helping us work on composites. They never sat down and told you that. Um, well, I mean, I know that we would have gone to them before we published the picture and said, "Talk to us." And so, I mean, whatever was in that story would have been what happened. Um, right. You know, I I haven't pulled the story, so I, I, you know, like I said, it's been so many years ago. I'm. Is going on some fairly faded memories here. Right, right. During this time, police were making a concerted effort to warn the public about police sketches and composite drawings. They told the Orlando Sentinel reporters that they had three or four composites of persons and vehicles that witnesses 
saw around the shop and go store, but they would not make them public because the witnesses could not all agree on one composite drawing. I think it's important that I mention something really quick. According to the Innocence Project, 362 convictions have been overturned since 1989 using DNA evidence that was not available at the time, and 70% of those wrongful convictions were based on eyewitness testimony. When you have eyewitnesses speaking to each other or taking in details from news sources before police get to them, you get what's called co-witness conformity. Witnesses who aren't exactly sure what they saw tend to fill in the blanks with the memories of others, leading questions, and just a general sense that witnesses wanting to be helpful can also lead to less-than-accurate statements. Add to this the coming and going of people and vehicles at a convenience store when you're trying to put together an accurate timeline, and you've got a bit of a hard puzzle to put back together months later when you finally track down some witnesses. Police were particularly critical of the sketch the Orlando Sentinel ran based on the child's descriptions. They noted that based on her own account, she never saw the man's face. Those details were added by the artist. The Orlando Sentinel hit back. They said that the sketch had prompted more than 100 calls from people who had seen someone resembling that drawing. A Winter Park, Florida detective noted that the sketch was too vague. He said it looked like Charles Manson which, if I am being fair, that's accurate. The guy in the sketch does look a lot like Charles Manson. Law enforcement's position on this sketch was stated more sternly in another Orlando Sentinel article. Quote, Law enforcement authorities told the Sentinel Monday they were upset by the picture because they questioned its accuracy. They accused the paper of prompting the witness into the description. Handwritten notes in the police report state this as well. The word speculation and admitted leading witness child are words scrawled in a note by an investigator at the time. Law enforcement also wanted the newspaper to know in no uncertain terms that the tips prompted by the sketch were taking time away from their investigation. You would have had no way of knowing that the information they were getting was not the same as what you were getting from that that group of people. And so I'm wondering all these years later what you think about that. If, you know, the fact that they maybe never said to you, by the way, um, that's that everyone else is not describing a long-haired person. They're describing someone with collar-length hair, long sideburns, stuff like that. But you you guys were all getting the exact, the same long-haired type deal um, when you were canvassing in that area? Yeah, I mean, that's, the, you know, we wouldn't have, uh, yeah. I mean, we weren't going to, make anything up that's you know that was what people were telling us and those were some as i recall some of the people that we talked to had never been talked to by the police department at that or by the sheriff's office at point so i mean it wouldn't have been a surprise that they might have a different description of somebody than they would because they hadn't talked to them right i do see that the 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 girl the young girl the the boy and the mother had been talked to by police prior I don't know if they had okay. told you that had been, and she didn't give all those details. She gave very scant details. It was, it seems like it was added to once they once they started talking to newspapers, and I think probably that was 
in effect, the concern with the police were, I mean, they have right in their notes, they believed that the child was led um, in her descriptions. Now, that's easy to do without even trying with a kid. I mean, you know, all you have to do is say one one thing and then she picks up on it, you know. But then again, I, I saw in one of the articles that her, her teacher was interviewed and she said, you know, listen, I, I'm not going to call her a liar. She doesn't, she's not that type of child. She may embellish, you know. So it's really hard to say. And I might have even, and I sort of do when I look at the the records now as a whole, I would have to probably put that that sketch aside based on everything I know that happened the day of, except for one pro- except for one problem, and that is that the witnesses that they did get in their timeline witnesses, um, there's there's some problems with cohesion. There's um, people who saw it at certain times and didn't see people who saw that that um, the bomb. Um, a bunch of people saw it. I'm surprised at how many people saw it. And then, and then sometimes someone would see it at one time, and then they didn't see it afterward. And so you have to. It seems impossible that someone would plant a bomb and then move it and put it back. But it's something you can't you can't rule it out now because you've got people saying different things at different times. You know what I mean? So while I would tend to maybe set that aside, there is something concerning about the fact that they had a case based on witnesses that in their own words, couldn't even agree on a composite sketch, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, they had, they had a mess. It was, it, I would call this case a mess. It was, it was, oh, it was. yeah. Yes, no doubt about it. Yeah. As I recall that when we did that sketch, things were slowing down a lot for them. They didn't have heart. I mean, at that point, I mean, there wasn't much coming in. There wasn't much going out, you know? Um, so my feeling was if anything that kept the story alive should, you know, for them, had something of a plus because, you know, something to shake out the trees and nothing did. But, I mean, like I said, they weren't shaking anything either. You know, then after a while, you know, then it became a, you know, a, a recovery story. And, you know, a, you know, he was up in Cincinnati at the Shriners Hospital and then people were raising money for him, um, you know. So the story kind of morphed over time you know, from the investigation into this, you know, recovery, how's he doing, what's going to happen in his future, that kind of stuff, too. So, I mean, it was a, it was a story that was constantly moving and changing. The only thing everybody agreed on was that, that Paul was not the intended target. Right. Least, you know, that, that he just happened to be the wrong place at the wrong time. So here are a couple examples of the leads that seem to filter in based on that Orlando Sentinel description that the child witness gave. A local reverend, approached a sheriff's deputy while he was working the sheriff's booth at the county fair and told him that for the past few days, he had seen a white male that fit the description in the Paul Jewell case. He was about six feet tall, 160 pounds. He had a long brown straggly beard. He was ungroomed, and he was hanging around the Salvation Army on State Road 50 in the Pine Hills area. The good reverend said that he had observed gas cans, ammunition, and a rifle in the rear of the station wagon. He asked the man if he had a place to live, and the topic of Christmas came up. This man told the reverend that he hated Christmas and kids. He said he never got any presents, and kids were a pain in the ass. He also told the reverend that he had been an explosives expert in the service. The police checked into this man, along with a bunch of other, quote, long-haired, scruffy-looking individuals, which, having grown up in Lockhart, I can tell you, didn't really narrow down the suspect pool all that much. A lot of the men that I knew around the time fit into that category, particularly the ones that worked outside. 
My dad worked on cars in his off time, and he was generally a hippie type. He always wore a beard, and aside from being a little bit shorter than this perpetrator, he fit the bill if you saw him on any given Sunday under one of our cars covered in grease. Another tipster overheard a conversation at the 76 station truck stop on South Orange Blossom Trail. The discussion was about bombs that one of the individuals had allegedly made. This man said that the name Jewel had come up as well as discussion of Paul Jewel's mother. After one of the men left, the other one started talking with the tipster and said that that guy lived about a mile from the shop and go where the incident occurred. He was also looked into. A lot of locals were looked into. Neighbors were calling tips on neighbors. If you lived in Lockhart or the surrounding area and someone mentioned anything about you knowing about bombs or bomb making or fireworks or basically anything that went boom, the police were knocking at your door, pulling your record, and chatting up the people who knew you. I will tell you this. I've covered 10 cases prior to this one on my podcast. And aside from the Julie Doe case that I recently covered, this is the only other case where it appears that police had absolutely no idea who did it. I cannot find a single good lead in the paperwork that I received. That is not to say that the perpetrator's name might not be in this file. It might be. I've got a long list of names. But I don't see a thing that looks even remotely like a thread that I could pull. It appears to me that police were absolutely flummoxed. So I'm going to play you a piece of audio that I got from the Orange County Sheriff's Department related to this case. It's an interview, and it gives you an idea about the quality of leads that they were getting in on this case. And speaking of quality, the audio quality on the following interview sucks, so I apologize in advance. I know that some of you will listen because you, like me, enjoy hearing the old interviews. But for the folks who just can't muster the strength to listen to about six minutes of crappy audio, you can fast forward. I give a very brief summary at the end. This is Detective Ronka with the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Today's date is February the 5th, 1986. The time is 1342 hours. This will be an interview in reference to case number 84-282954, reference to the bombing of Paul Jewell. Go ahead and tell me what you think I should know. Okay. Um well, uh, me and a friend of mine, Levon, uh... What's his name? Levon. Levon, okay. Um, we got a phone call from this guy named Jeff, and he was wanting to sell some stolen stuff that he stole. Okay. And then, um... What exactly was this stuff, do you know? A bicycle, uh, some other things I can't remember. Okay. Um, we went and picked up the stuff, and we went and sold it. Okay. And uh, he, Jeff didn't know where we lived. He knew our phone number. Okay. So LeVon decided to keep the money that we, instead of bringing the money back to Jeff. That was the deal? No, well you see, we were supposed to bring the money back to Jeff. Okay, well after you sold the stuff. Yeah. How much money are we talking about? 35, you know, $35. Okay. 
Um, well, he wanted $70 for the stuff, and we couldn't get $70. So we got 35 so we just didn't even bring none of the money back. All right. And um, then um, all that night, I mean, we got about seven phone calls from this guy, Jeff, and he was threatening us that he was going to kill us. And that we shouldn't screw him over, and um, he just kept on threatening us. So Levon talked me into staying at his house that night, so in case anything happened. Okay. And I stayed at his house, and the next morning, um, we went. We went in my car. We were going to go to Orlando, and. Um, my tire was real low. My tire was real low. And we did not, we didn't stop, we were going to stop and get air at that, at the, uh, that store. But we kept on going because we didn't have no change. We kept on going and got air at the free place on, on 441. Okay. And um, when we when we went into Orlando, um, I mean we were heading back, and and that bomb has already went off, and you know road was already blocked off, and that's really much as as much as I know. But um, I know the same day that guy. Jeff um, left state. He came back a month later, and he was in friends with Levon. So, you know, I, I I think he left because he was, you know, scared. Okay. But um, you know, he threatened us that night. What were the threats? Well, that he was he was gonna definitely kill us if if we screwed him up, and. Um, you know, I didn't believe him. I kept on saying, um, the hell with you, you know, and hang up the phone. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> you know, he, he kept on calling back and giving the same threats that he was going to kill us. Did, did um, Jeff know that it was your car? Yeah. You knew what kind of car you had? Yeah, it was a Pinto. What color? It was a green, a green Pinto. Which tire was flat? The passenger back tire. Was it completely flat, or was it just low on air? It was re it was close to flat. It was you know. Uh, it was why? Why was it flat? Did it did it have a nail in it? No. Did, it, did somebody just release air out of the valve? Somebody released air out of the valve. You never had any problem with that tire before. Or after filling it? Is that what no, you're saying? No, I never had no problem. After I filled it, it was fine. See, this is what I'm presuming that, you know, I have no ideal, you know. But um, if he was one, I'd like to see the guy who done it get caught myself. Okay, well, I can presume a lot of things, but tell me what your theory is. Well, I, my theory is that he did it. Like I said, I really think he did it.
did what, Tony? I think he set the bomb for me and Levon. Had you and Levon ever talked about the theory? Yes. And what did Levon say? Well, um, when we drove back from Orlando uh, and it was marked off and we found out there was a bomb there, we both, um, you know, we both said to each other it had to be set for us. Did When you drove past the store going to Orla Vista, did you see the air pump? Yeah. And you were thinking about it because your tire was flat. Yeah. And did you see anything around the air pump? No. We, you know, uh, we stopped at the stop sign and I said, I, you know, I said, LeVon, we need air. And he said to go ahead and get it on the Orange Blossom Trail so we wouldn't have to pay the quarter. And so we went on and got air at some gas station. It was free. Then we went down Pine Hills Road the back way in the world. This okay, did you look at the air pump on the corner at the store? We, you know, maybe glanced at it, but we didn't look at it, no. So you don't recall seeing anything unusual there? No. Is there any other circumstances or any other evidence or any other things that you can tell me that might, you know, lead me to believe that, um, you know, the bomb or this guy, Jeff, you know, devised the device, the bomb, and put it there? Mm. Any other information you might have? No, not you really. you got to admit, what you're telling me is very sketchy. Yeah. Well, um, with him leaving the same day out of state, you know, um, me and both Levon said he had to be the one who done it. But, you know, that's just what we think, so. Hey, allow me to summarize. This kid and his friend agree to sell some stolen stuff for a guy named Jeff, but they end up ripping the guy off for $35 instead. Jeff is allegedly so pissed that he's going to kill these boys. And then this kid is talking. He goes out on Christmas Day and he sees that he's got a flat tire. Later that day, when he and his buddy pass by the shop and go and learn about the bombing, they immediately assume that that bomb was meant for them. After being cheated out of 35 whole dollars, Jeff, the criminal mastermind, decides that he is so incensed he's going to whip up a pipe bomb, sneak over to the kid's house, flatten his tire, and then plant the bomb, believing that the kid will head right up to the shop and go and fill that tire. But if you were paying attention, you might have picked up on the fatal flaw in that plot, the fact that the kid didn't even fill up his tire at the shop and go on Christmas Day, because he and the friend opted to drive a bit further on that flat tire to save the quarter and get free air elsewhere. Jeff, our criminal mastermind, foiled by thriftiness. So, yeah, that was basically the type of tips that they were getting on this case. Unfortunately, it feels a whole lot like scraping the bottom of the barrel to me. In the next episode, I'm going to get into the timeline, and you'll hear from what I think is a very important eyewitness. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay tuned. Thanks again to Dan Tracy for agreeing to speak with me. In the same way that I'm sure police probably feel all cringy when someone like me digs into one of their cases and starts critiquing their performance, with, by the way, zero professional training with which to do so, I suspect that reporters looking back at their work and having others do so 
with the hindsight that 2020 provides must be a similar experience. I really appreciate Dan's honesty and his willingness to discuss a story that he covered over 35 years ago.